You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, we were just talking about the nine o'clock service. It's now you have um, multiple people working on the same text on any given Sunday. So it's kind of fun to compare notes. Uh, maybe we should all get together on Friday and talk it through. Um, and then come up with the approach. We're in Luke chapter 16 today, the parable of the shrewd manager. And there's a study sheet right there on the stool. If you got it coming in. And this passage actually corresponds really well with the Fools for Christ passage that those of you in the 9 o'clock service just came from. Um, Hi, Mary. Um, You know, I've made the point that uh, Jesus' parables are truth-told slant from Emily Dickinson's poem. Um, And if there's any parable that's told slant, it would be this one. This may be the most slanted parable of them all. And there are just so many multiple interpretations that people have come up with for this parable of the shrewd manager. Uh, Let's begin by reading. Uh, It's in the italicized section in the first column and into the second column. Luke chapter 16, verse 1, and then we'll pray. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Now, just a clarification. Really what that means is that I'll get a job. You know, he's a steward of a household, of a mini corporation, you might say. And uh, so he's not asking to to, uh, be invited over for dinner. Uh, He's invited, he's asking to, uh, to get a new job as a, as a steward or as a manager. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Slash it in half. And then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 1,000 bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill, and make it 800. The master commended, now there's the twist, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. So that when all when it is all gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
Now, it's interesting. Biblical scholars play with the idea that the parable may not be in this particular narrative context. So somebody, uh, well, Capon is a famous Episcopal priest who has worked hard on the parables. Uh, And I think it's one of the books that's being used for a small group study on the parables. But this is one place where he really gets it wrong because he extracts it from the narrative and says it's just the story here. So how do we understand the story? Well, I don't think we can understand this story apart from the narratival context, apart from how Luke used it. Verse 10 Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, we pick out the fact that the Pharisees are part of this group. In the context, going back to Luke 15, 1, there's the realization that the Pharisees are upset with Jesus for sitting down with, with sinners and tax collectors. But they're the... They're the second party, the Pharisees, in this context, along with the third party, which we emphasized last week, the disciples. Verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. See how it fits so well with this morning's message? It's kind of a gospel version of that uh, the Fools for Christ Corinthian passage. Let's begin with prayer. Guide us, Lord, into understanding by your Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father and in the name of the Son. We pray together. Amen. Well, what should we make of this uh, slanted truth-telling parable. There's been all sorts of variations of interpretation. Is Jesus saying that we ought to be deceptive? Shrewd in the sense of the world for making our way subversively in it? It's interesting, the word, uh, and this is number three on the introductory comment, The shrewd manager has something in common with the prodigal son in the previous parable. It's the same word. They are both wasting someone else's possessions. So the description of the prodigal son, we looked at that parable uh, last week, is the same word that's used to describe this dishonest manager. They're wasting somebody else's possessions. But if the point of the parable of the lost son is that wherever sin is Wherever sin is, grace abounds. The point of the unjust steward is that the world knows how to handle money according to worldly principles. Better than Christians know 
how to handle money according to kingdom principles. So I've given it away. That's it. That's what this parable, I think, is about. Jesus is saying the world is pretty good at being shrewd. I wish we were as good in kingdom principles, in living the Christian life according to a biblical reality. Number four, Luther drew attention to the Lord's special term for wealth. And this comes in verse 11, handling worldly wealth. Luther called it the mammon of unrighteousness because of the dishonest use to which it is put. But later in his sermon, which is a really good sermon on this parable, he adds a further reason. The Lord does not call mammon unrighteous solely because some use it dishonestly. He calls it also something alien because it is a temporal treasure and does not endure forever, as does the spiritual. Eternal life is our, that is, the Christian's treasure. So Luther is suspect of mammon on two grounds. One, it just often gets used wrongly. Two, it is of a temporal, worldly order. It's an alien tool to the Christian. That not, doesn't mean it can't be used or shouldn't be used or uh, ought to be used in a Christian way, but it's not neutral. Money is not neutral. It belongs to the world. So it's not like it doesn't make any difference. It has difference built into it. It has a power that is a worldly power. Now, that's, that's a debated point, the neutrality of money, as if it doesn't really matter, but then how you use it matters. I think there's, Jesus is saying something more about that when he labels it worldly wealth. Number five, the simplicity of the story. I love doing this uh, at the Advent because you talk about money at the Advent and everybody's interested. It, it right away gets there because we all deal with it. And therefore, it is a sensitive subject. And how you come down on it is something that people pay attention to. Number five, the simplicity of the story. An unethical manager cheats his master and cleverly defends himself when he's caught should remain intact. That's it. You know, it's just interesting, the reams of material that are written on parables when the, Jesus meant the parables to be very clear and fairly understandable. We have a tendency to overthink and burden the account with extraneous speculation and Middle Eastern customs. So I read people that, you know, debate on the level of wealth of the master producing clients with 900 gallons of olive oil, what degree of wealth was he, you know, those, those kind of discussions, which are really beside the point. The guy's wealthy. These are big ticket items. And that Jesus intended to be really clear. The materialist master had to hand it to the dishonest manager who acted shrewdly. He knew how to look out for himself. 
Is there a certain pride that we have as Americans, as to people who are winners, even if they do it quite shrewdly? That it's better to be a winner than a loser, even if it means for you to act shrewdly, deceptively, duplicity. I mean, and there's a certain brilliance to that. I do think that's part of the American dream. That's part of what's built into our culture. How you got there? Yeah, maybe a question. But I think we take great pride if you've arrived and if you're a winner. Six, Jesus told this parable to set up a stunning contrast between the ways of the world and the Jesus way. I think it's that simple. There is a right way and a wrong way to look out for yourself. You can lie, cheat, steal, and swindle to gain the upper hand in a transactional world. Or you can use worldly wealth to befriend, support, and show compassion in a hurting world. Is it that simple? Calvin wrote this about this um, parable. The leading object of this parable is to show that we ought to deal kindly and generously with our neighbors. That when we come to the judgment seat of God, we reap the fruit of our liberality. The contrast is between selfishness motivated by self-preservation and exemplified by the shrewd manager and self-sacrifice for the sake of others, motivated by great by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Eight, the fact that the world is good at doing things in a worldly way does not need much explanation, according to Martin Luther. In his sermon, he says, we see every day all too often how the world pursues its own ends so devotedly because it has its interests at heart and spares no pain or effort to get them. On the other hand, we see how the children of light, that is, confessed Christians, are unproductive, listless, negligent, indolent in divine matters, even though they know that God delights in their efforts and that they will enjoy his pleasure in eternity. For them, it's a great struggle to do what is good. Draw a profitable lesson from the awful conduct of the world and look at it this way. If a peasant or a burger, a wealthy citizen, merchant, blacksmith, wife, maid, and so on can serve the devil with such diligence, sparing no pains, why shouldn't I want to serve the Lord in the same manner with whom one day I hope to share eternity? So is the world's way of getting its own way an inspiration to Christians to pursue the Christian way, the Jesus way? So often uh, Luke uses parables as an illustration of what Jesus taught kind of indicatively, propositionally, in the Sermon on the Mount. And these stories probably speak to us far, in a far sharper way than uh, indicative statements of what we should do. Number nine, we are all called to sanctify worldly wealth by using it in an unworldly way. 
instead of idolizing it and making it into a god, we make it a servant. By God's grace, we make it holy. On this side of eternity, money is meant to serve kingdom purposes. This is hardly a moralistic parable about curving materialism. It's about setting kingdom priorities in how we use worldly wealth because we have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. Luke reminds us at the end of this narrative section that the Pharisees have been in earshot all the time. <laughs> it ends with the religious leaders. You know, not the tax collectors. Not the people who were known within the community for uh, overbilling and overdemanding and oppressing. Instead, it ends with, in Jesus' mind, the arch representatives of materialists, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And they are disdaining Jesus as he tells this story. They're sneering at him. And literally, their upper lip, I mean, that's literally, it's a, a description of a facial expression that Luke uses. They lifted up their nose, noses to him. The materialist master, the shrewd ex-manager, and the Pharisees were all in the same boat. And the characters in the parables were foils for the real lovers of money, uh, the Pharisees. An interesting book, um, kind of along this line that explores how we get our way, is Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath. Uh, and I won't read that paragraph. Here's the sum of it. Uh, Gladwell shows how people with particular and specific disabilities, for example, dyslexia, are really, and our middle son is dyslexic, are really good at finding alternative ways for succeeding. They usually draw on other aptitudes. Like our middle son um, is just really good at communicating interpersonally. Uh, hates books, never reads, if he can help it. Um, but in terms of relating to people, I don't know if there's anybody who doesn't like Andrew. Um, there's, and Gladwell just tells story after story of people that uh, know how to get ahead even though they have an acknowledged disability or there's you know, a terrible family background. Abandonment everywhere. And yet, one of the best surgeons in Chicago. Um, and you know, it just, they're really great stories of, of making it in a difficult situation. Uh, some of that inspiration, I think, is what Jesus is tapping into in terms of how we navigate and negotiate life in terms of kingdom principles. Clyde Snodgrass has a very comprehensive 500-page book on the parables, uh, and it's a very good book. And he writes this, number 12, the accusation is still painfully true that the people of this age are wiser in their arena than the children of light in theirs. And this is a question, is it? I have it is, I typed it wrong. 
Is it because with one eye on this age and one eye on the kingdom, a necessary split vision, we allow ourselves to be determined more by our age than Christ's kingdom? Christians are dominated by the same concerns as the rest of society, but Jesus' teaching is intended to give us a different set of concerns. Once again, the subject of works righteousness may suggest itself, but only because we've distorted the subjects of faith and obedience. In Jesus' teaching, obedience to the will of the Father determines eternal destiny and earns approval. The idea of faith without such obedience is nonsense. Ah, we're steeped in the strategies of the world. Do we comprehend the strategies of the kingdom as well? Now, that's our question. I know many of you have a strategy for retirement, a stewardship of retirement. What Jesus is provocatively saying here is, do you have a stewardship of eternity as well? Timothy George uh, summed up in a talk, a conference on racial reconciliation that was held last week at Beeson. And he said, we have a stewardship of geography. And then he illustrated that. We have a stewardship of history in terms of the, the racial issue. And we have a stewardship of eternity. That's the first time I've ever heard that phrase, stewardship of eternity. Uh, but this parable certainly speaks to that stewardship of eternity. Uh, do we have a stewardship for eternity equal to a stewardship of the marketplace? Number 13, Vernon Grounds feared that Christians in the West unwittingly inculcate believers with the virus of worldly success. Vernon Grounds was the president of Denver Theological Seminary, a wonderful Christian, uh, a true intellect, and yet very relational and personable. But he had a prophetic edge, but he never came across as prophetic, always friendly. Uh, I would drop by there, his office at Denver Theological Seminary, uh, just to say hi as a pastor in Denver. Stopped everything. Would always offer a donut, coffee and tea, no matter what he was working on. Never seemed like it was an interruption, even though he was a really, really hard worker. He wrote an article, uh, this, and this, this quote is from that. It was a one-pager, uh, Faith for Failure was the title. Seminal article for me. I've shared it with students for decades now. Uh, Faith for Failure. Uh, and he warned, maybe we are subtly communicating the message that success in God's service is to be noticeably superior. Maybe we've been failing to communicate a clear-cut biblical understanding of success. God's standards of success differ radically from those of the world. 
grounds argued. So in Luke 16.15, which is a verse he quoted, it comes from our text, our Lord Jesus flatly affirms what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Now, Jesus, don't you want to qualify that? Don't you want to nuance that? Don't you want to say this, but then say that? (laughs) But Jesus doesn't. And sometimes I wonder if we as pastors immediately want to kind of recover and save Jesus. We want to qualify it, nuance it. Let everybody know this is what Jesus meant. And not just let the bomb land. Just let it be. And what would the Spirit of God do with that comment in our life? Um, You know, one of the things, and I don't quite know how to do this in the next service, in the 11 o'clock service, but the passage that many of you just came from in 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul uses this parable of the Roman processional and the apostles and the proclaimers of the kingdom come in dead last as the scum and garbage of the world. I wonder if some of my persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ would say that to me this morning. You've got it all made. You've got a seminary appointment. You have a teaching, preaching opportunity at the Advent. You live in a nice house. There is no danger in your life. Uh, You've got it made. But I'm coming in at the rear. My North Korean sister in Christ. And so I hear echoes of that in my mind from that text. I've got it made. And it's, it's disturbing. I mean, I think the orientation of that text for us today is probably not that. It is to me, but it's not that as much as the clergy-laity divide. So you're in business. And you deal with worldly wealth. What Luther calls the mammon of unrighteousness on two counts. Your calling is no less. The concern for holiness is no less. Your responsibility to God is no less than mine. I don't have a special call. We have one call. And so your holy vocation is what God has called you into. And that's no more, no greater or less demanding than it would be for me as well. I think the passage has a lot to do with the clergy-laity divide, and Paul is basically saying in 1 Corinthians 4, we're no different than you. So forget about sort of uh, the Corinthian dream with Jesus on top. There's a cruciform life that you're called to and there's a cruciform life that I'm called to. Vernon Grounds, uh, further in the middle. The Bible turns values topsy-turvy. See where I'm reading in the middle, second column? Puts on top things, fall, 
puts on top things fallen man puts on the bottom and ranks last things fallen man puts first. It praises the weakness which is strength and denounces the strength which is weakness. It praises the poverty which is wealth and denounces the wealth which is poverty. It praises the dying which is living and denounces the living which is dying. No wonder then that it praises the failure which is success and denounces the success which is failure. There's an interesting book. I, I really at time. Oh, wish that um, our the setting was in a sense more dialogical, um, where people could talk. Because I know you're all thinking. Uh, I can see it. Um, the brain is working. Uh, the heart and the soul are working. And I just. Uh, I hate sort of giving, laying this out in a vacuum without sort of the, the feedback and the interaction. Uh, but somewhat to take the pressure away. Um, Michael Pillsbury has written a book on China and the 100-year marathon. And uh, he's a China expert, has been doing it in and out of administrations and uh, educational centers and think tanks for some 40 years. And he argues that America has not a clue as to the strategy of China and how China is operating in such a way that by 2049, they are the number one superpower. And America is a close, uh, well, a distant, I should say, a distant second. And it's just really interesting to read his book on uh, how China, in a way, has uh, led us along and how we have wanted to impose our strategy upon them. Like, yes, of course, capitalism leads eventually to democracy and that this kind of globalization of the economy will lead to a, a greater openness and, and all of that. And we, this is what we've hoped for, wanted for China. But China has no interest in that. China is strategizing according to its 3,000-year history. And 2,000 years ago, the Warring States philosophy. And this is becoming uppermost in the minds of those Chinese leaders. Uh, and it just it was interesting that you can be in a strategy but not kind of understand it, not realize it. So I guess bottom line of this class is maybe scrutinizing prayerfully what strategies, what ways of dealing with unholy, unrighteous mammon are we participating in? And do you have a stewardship for eternity along with your stewardship of retirement? And how are you using money for kingdom purposes? Kind of a big agenda, huh? Uh, let's pray. Lord God, thanks for this time in your word. Uh, these parables hit hard, I think. 
I ask for wisdom and understanding in its application for sisters and brothers in Christ here at the Advent. Together we praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.